lives for young people um, and for those of you also that may be sacrificing in a young person's life and you may not have the title mom but we all know that you're making an impact and influencing that person and so we thank you for that we thank you this morning with chocolates and roses and so if you didn't get that coming in please uh, take some on the way out uh, they're quality chocolates seize candy because everything else is unacceptable so that is what we have. Um, I also want to welcome anyone new in the building. If you're not familiar with who we are, that is, information is in the seat pocket in front of you. We also have a gift for you. Uh, we are going through the Book of Mark, and we have these scripture uh, journals in the back. Uh, you can also pick one up on your way out, uh, if you're, whether you're just visiting for one day or you want to continue on in Mark with us. Those are available to you. Oh, what else? What else? Oh, yes. Um, before I get going and just give you a little bit of information about what's going on this week, I want to invite Hannah to come up. Um, I uh, had her, I mentioned her last week, and she is a young lady that is headed to Bass Country uh, at the end of June. And so she's going to just share a little bit with you about why she's going and what she needs to get there. everyone. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Hannah. <laughs> um, I am 16 and I'm a junior at Truckee High School. So I'm up here to share with you the fact that this upcoming summer I'm going to be joining um, Johnny and Jordan Wong in the Basque country of Spain for about five weeks. So um, I've wanted to go to Spain for about five years now. It's been like top of my bucket list, the biggest dream of mine. And I kept trying to pursue it, and all the doors were always shut, and like it just never was working out. But about six months ago, I met Jordan when she was up here, and since then, all of the doors have just been open, and it's been green lights all the way. Um, so after the service, I'll be in the back um, selling succulents to support my trip. It's kind of like a bake sale, but it's a little more personal. <laughs> um, and if you'd like to support me, I'd love to have a conversation with you about what I'll be doing there. I will be teaching in their English school. I'll be a barista in their coffee shop, and then I'll be helping with their church planting. So if you want to hear more about that, I would love to talk with you. But that's pretty much it. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for getting up here, Hannah. Uh, you all are very intimidating. So she uh, did a great job with that. And so, yeah, if you have more information, if you want to know more about what she's going to do and what, what, uh, what it's going to take to get there, please talk to her after the service. Um, a couple other things, and I'm going to go in order of events. Tomorrow, uh, last announcement because it's happening, Lucas and Alana are having their community baby shower. That is tomorrow evening here in Ray Hall next door where fellowship was between services. And so that is happening. You are all invited. If you're all going to come, you probably should tell Sue so she knows how much cake to have. But that is happening tomorrow night. A few days after that, on Friday the 13th, there is the Ladies' Bunko Night. And there is a sign-up sheet in the back for that. They would just like to know who's going to be there. There is, it is $5 because there are prizes. And if you've never played Bunko, I can't explain it to you. It's really complicated, but it's a lot of fun, and it's a quick, fast-paced, energetic game. Um, and so I really enjoy it. And so you're invited, if you're female, uh, to come to a Bunko Night. 
now, in a month from now, there's a men's retreat. So that was for ladies, now the men. There is a men's retreat. Mike Harrison was up here a couple weeks ago. They're going to the Rubicon Trail. It's all very rustic. And so the, because of that, and because it takes a lot of energy to get there, and they can't have 50, 100 men there. Um, but so they have a few slots left. I think they have 10 slots left, I was told. So if you are interested in going and you're a man, uh, even if you don't have the dates worked out yet, I would encourage you to talk with Mike and let him know that you're interested in going. All right, so those are the things happening in the next week or two. Um, and now I want to invite up our elder, one of our elders, John Drollinger, who's going to take us through Mark this morning. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Amy, and happy Mother's Day to you, and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the room. Uh, what a wonderful day to have your Mother's Day squashed by weather. <laughs> a wonderful trucky tradition to just see those tulips and daffodils get buried, right? <laughs> happy Mother's Day. My mother-in-law is here from Idaho, Valerie. It's great having her here this morning. She's, she's a great mother-in-law. Um, but my wife is not here, hence grandma's here. So my wife's actually down in SoCal with my mom, my stepmom. So we kind of switched spots, but we'll all be together later this afternoon and looking forward to that. Um, but wow, has being wifeless over the weekend made me appreciate motherhood and mom. Uh, my mother-in-law arrived and the truck wouldn't, that she came in wouldn't go into gear. So it's like, oh, okay. We're uh, having to arrange the kids and get a tow truck and off to the mechanic. And then our dog somehow had some allergic reaction and his face swelled up like a balloon. And my kids are like, we got to get him to the vet. And I'm trying to prepare for a message. I'm like, where's my wife? I need and so I really appreciate and miss my wife right now. And then this morning I'm driving here and my son has a Jeep, and of course he's anxious for summer and already took the windows off. So I'm now using his Jeep to get to church. So I have hair by Jeep Wrangler this morning, another sign of how disheveled I am without a wife. So um, happy Mother's Day to you all. I am going to just pick up in the next verse in Mark 2 where Jesse left off, but I did kind of feel like, man, I wonder if I should say something to the mothers. So I was like, Lord, what should I say? Or is there anything, you know? And I just had this really kind of sentimental sort of hallmarky thought for the ladies in this room, which is men grow up. <laughs> men, <laughs> love your wives, lead them, provide for them, protect them. If you're not married and marriageable age, I lead the young adults group, and I can tell you there's a lot more eligible women than men right now. So men, grow up. End of Mother's Day message. There you go, ladies. <laughs> All right, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Let me read this passage, verse 1 through 12. We'll pray, and then I'll tell you where we're headed. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. If you need a Bible, yeah, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Brad. Uh, raise your hand, and these guys will put one in your hand. Mark 2, 1 through 12. When he entered Capernaum again, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Lord, please speak to us this morning. What an amazing passage. There's so, so much in this beautiful text of Scripture. What an amazing story. What an amazing show of your power. And we see the crowd was absolutely astonished by what they saw. And Lord, I want to convey everything that's in this passage, and I know my limits as a speaker, and I pray for your spirit to work in and through this time so that we too all may be astonished in the same way this crowd was. In your name, amen. So that's the goal this morning, is to be astonished by Jesus. Astonished by Jesus. My goal by the end of this is to be sitting in the same spot the people in this passage were sitting, which is that they're all astounded and giving glory to God, saying we've never seen anything like that. If we arrive there, we'll have accomplished the goal. So what I want you to think about right now is sometime in your life that you've been astonished or astounded. When have you been astonished by something? And astonishment is this idea of something that's beyond what your senses can explain. You're you're receiving so many inputs and so many signals smells, sounds, sights that your brain can't really process it and you're beside yourself. You can't really describe what you're seeing. That's what it means to be astonished or amazed and that's where these people were at. So mothers, I'm sure if I say, if you, Lily, um, uh, what's your name again? Alana, oh my gosh, I can't believe I spaced on that. We've got some expecting mothers about to be astonished and any mother, any father in that birthing room, you've been astonished at the birth of the child for sure. But not all of us has been through that. But in Truckee, I'd be willing to bet most of you have been astonished somehow by something in God's creation. I know that I certainly have been astonished and I think of entering through the tunnel entrance to Yosemite and you come in and you see El Cap on the left and Bridal Veil Falls and Half Dome in the background and the beauty of that valley and your senses are overwhelmed and you're astonished. You might have got that sensation standing at the rim of Grand Canyon 
Or I remember feeling that way one time when we took a tour boat on the north shore of Kauai, the Nepali coast, and just feeling astonished, like my senses couldn't explain what I was seeing. And that's how these people felt. And that's our goal to see that in Jesus this morning. So what we're going to do is see at least three miracles, and I'm shooting for a bonus fourth. Um, But I want you to see and be astonished by Jesus' forgiveness, his omniscience, meaning that he's all-knowing, and his omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. And I'll save the bonus for the end, but hang on for the bonus um, because it's absolutely astonishing. So those are the three or four things that we'll be shooting for today. But these first couple verses are kind of a lead-in to that, a little bit of setting the ground. That's what Mark does here to kind of get you into this story. So chapter 2, verse 1, when he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. When he entered Capernaum, so just like they did, I want us to do, so kind of put on your Hop in your little time machine. We're going to go back in time to Capernaum, which is right on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it sits on Galilee where Tahoe City sits on Lake Tahoe. Galilee is not quite as big as Lake Tahoe, but it's huge. And it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. But it's still above the Dead Sea, which is down the Jordan River, and that's the lowest lake on earth, and that's um, saltwater. So that's Capernaum. And Capernaum was, it's actually below sea level, about 600 feet. It's lower than Death Valley. So where Capernaum sat geographically is also how it was perceived socially. The people in Jerusalem, 2,500 feet up on the hill, more the pure-blooded Jews, the religious zealots, they kind of had their nose up at the people down in Capernaum, the immigrants, common folk, ordinary people, carpenters, fishermen, tradesmen, lower class, lower middle class, and they didn't really affiliate with the people up in Jerusalem. I grew up in the mountains of Southern California in a town called Lake Arrowhead, and I remember we used to look down on Crestline, and Crestline we nicknamed Crudline, or if you were from Crestline, you were a Crestline critter. And it didn't have a good reputation. And us people up in Lake Arrowhead would kind of thumb, you know, stub our nose up at the people in Crestline. And of course, what did the Lord eventually do in my life? Where did he move me? <laughs> no, worse than Crestline to Los Angeles, which is horrible. And you're like, hi, Satan, like 10 feet below you. <laughs> it, I mean, it made Crestline look absolutely amazing living in Los Angeles. Some of you guys who live up in Tahoe Donner, you kind of snub your nose at us Glenshire people when we say it snowed because you're like, (laughs) you think it snowed in Glenshire. And that is how Capernaum would be perceived in this this time and place. Uh, The home... When it says it was reported he was at home, that's actually probably Peter's home, which was kind of the base of operation for the apostles. They came in and out of there a lot. And uh, this is where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law because the poor gal was probably frantically serving Jesus and his apostles being hospitable all the time. And so 
you don't want to be sick when people are staying at your house. And he healed her graciously. Um, And her house was used for ministry. And as you can see later in the passage, it's about to be invaded. Um, Verse 2, so many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was, stop right there, not even in the doorway. So these crowds, these crowds, Mark loves the crowds. Mark's kind of an action guy. He likes the commotion. He likes the busyness of the crowds. And he tends to speak of the crowd somewhat positively as you go through this book. Jesus, on the other hand, he was a little bit pestered by the crowds. Often he was somewhat annoyed by them because they were so fickle. And he often felt that the crowd was there for the wrong reason, like the feeding of the 5,000. You're just there for the free handouts. You just want the signs, the wonders, the miracles. You don't want the real me. And so often you have to see how is the crowd at work here. And second part of verse 2, he was speaking the word to them. This is what Jesus did, did. This is the hallmark of his ministry. It's the main thing about him was his teaching ministry and spoken word. And that's going to be important a couple times as we walk through this. So the story continues. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Does not say the man's exact condition or what caused his paralysis. Um, But we do know that he was disabled, and whether that was from some kind of disease or injury or birth defect, uh, we don't exactly know. It doesn't say, but we do know that he was dependent on others, that the mat he was on, some kind of gurney, was carried by four of them. So you might think of this as his wheelchair. It's kind of how he got around. And it was carried by four of them. So he was very dependent which is how anyone in this condition would be in those times, was highly dependent. And part of that is because Jewish leadership taught a false view of sickness. And if a person was in this kind of a condition or had leprosy or some kind of disease, they taught that it was God's judgment on that person, that it was because of sin in their life and that you ought to ostracize yourself from them, kind of disfranchise, socially distance from anybody in a condition like that. And so they were dependent. And you see in the the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, some of those religious leaders just kind of skirted around the poor guy who needed help on the side of the road. Well, that's because they thought that's his judgment, God's judgment on that. So here he is, dependent, being carried by four friends. And verse 4, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, that's the reason, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. So there's a little more negative view of the crowd. That's really a mean thing to do to a person. (laughs) If the guy shows up on a mat needing the healing intervention, divine power of Jesus, and the crowd is like, go away. We don't want to let you through. We like the entertainment. We want better seats. We want the front row of what Jesus is teaching and talking about. And this mean crowd won't even let the poor guy through. It kind of shows where their hearts are really at. But they're determined. And they see an alternate route (laughs) 
And they, it says they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which he was lying. So to understand what's going on here, you have to put yourself in the climate of Capernaum. Probably similar to SoCal, maybe even Palm Desert. Doesn't rain a whole lot. So your roofing, your, your infrastructure doesn't really have a lot of demands on it. Um, it's not like Tahoe Donner, where your rafters are like six by fifties and about this far apart. Whereas in Glenshire, our roofs are built with chopsticks. <laughs> so this roof is not like that. It didn't get the inspections that we have around here in Truckee. It was probably inspector that ought to do it, that came through and kept an eye on things. So the, re- the roof would probably be built out of branches with palm fronds laid across it and then some kind of mud or clay to seal out the weather. And it wouldn't be high like this room. It wasn't engineered that way. The roof might have only been six or eight feet. So they kind of dig through and they're just right above Jesus and they lower him down. So that's probably what's going on in in this situation. And they lowered the mat. It says they lowered the mat. You might, you might say bed on which the paralytic was lying. And that's an important detail in Mark. We'll see that later in his healing. But this word for mat it would be the same word for mattress or bed. And keep that in mind later. I'll point something out that Mark wants us to see about the mat. And here we go into the first miracle, five. Seeing their faith, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So the sequence here is really important. It says, seeing their faith. And I want to pause on that word seeing for a minute because it comes up in an important way later in the passage But seeing means that he kind of saw into his heart and mind and soul. It was deeper than the surface. So these guys have made a lot of effort carrying this guy, getting up on the roof. They've gone through a lot of effort, a lot of struggle, a lot of toil, a lot of hard work. And he doesn't mention that. He doesn't say, I see what you guys have done to work your way up to me and get healing. They didn't earn this for themselves. He says, seeing their faith. And the faith was what lied beneath their efforts, their faith in Jesus in order to bring him there. And he saw that. This, it's a deeper seeing into their heart and mind. Seeing their faith, Jesus told, important emphasis on his speaking ministry, that the power of his word accomplishes this. Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, sonship, that he as a father adopted this sinner into his family. Do you know how good that would have felt to this poor guy who has received no love for the last however many years he's been in this condition? Ostracized from Israel's community, shunned because of this sinful condition. So they thought in his life that he shouldn't be included in Israel's social network to say, son, that, that word of adoption, you now have a family, you now have a father. Your sins are forgiven. Those wrongdoings, 
those things that you've done that separated from me, your strayings, your deviations, your shortfalls, your missing the marks, these sins are forgiven. I see them, I see the lot of them, and you're now forgiven. You're separated from them in such a way that I no longer see them anymore. It's, it's not that he's turning a blind eye for his, to the sin or ignoring it and it's still there. It's that he's separated from it. That's what forgiveness means. He's pardoned. And he sees this paralyzed person as clean before God. Absolutely amazing, the miracle of forgiveness that Jesus would speak that. Have your sins been forgiven? Have you been pardoned? Have you been separated from your sin? Now, if you look at this passage, that sentence, your sins are forgiven, kind of sits in the middle of the story. And a lot of the ways ancient writers wrote uh, is a term called chiastic, chiasm, but it's kind of where the story builds up to a main point and then flows out from it. In English and in our movies and in Hollywood and most of our stories and novels, the story kind of builds to a point in like the last two-thirds and then sort of resolves quickly. Um, here, it's more in the middle that it crescendos and then works out from that. So the, the, the narrative shifts a bit now. Verse 6. Verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now there is some truth to what they're saying. There, it is true that only God can forgive sins. They were right about that. And they are also correct that Blasphemy is a serious consequence. Leviticus 24.16 says, whoever blasphemes the name must be put to death. So this isn't just from the hip. They're following Levitical law. This is something that they took very seriously was blasphemy. Um, they thought it, if someone else would attempt to do this, that that would be ridiculing God, um, insulting him. But what they don't consider is, is that true? Could this be the Messiah? Is this, in fact, the Son of God? Maybe God is speaking forgiveness. They're, they're not giving the logic any chance that the possibility that this could be the Son of God. And so Jesus wants them to get there, though. So he helps them along. And this is where we see our second miracle this morning that should astonish us, which is the miracle of divine omniscience. Omniscience. O-M-N-I-S. Omniscience, okay? S-C-I-E-N-C-E. -E, omniscience. And this means that he's all-knowing, that he knows what's going on in and out of us. Psalm 139 speaks to God's omniscience. And we see clearly, Mark wants you to see that he... Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts and minds. Look at all these clues. There's like five. Uh, verse six, the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Uh, verse eight, right away Jesus perceived in his spirit, in his spirit, that they were thinking like this. 
and said, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Mark wants you to see something here that they didn't say this out loud. They didn't speak the quiet part out loud. He, he knew, he perceived, he saw inside of them just like he saw inside the paralytic, seeing their faith, he saw into their heart and mind. And good grief, if someone did that to you, and just analyze your thoughts on the spot, wouldn't you be a little taken back by that? I would. That would freak me out. But it, these guys still aren't getting it. They should see, oh my gosh, he just x-rayed my brain, my heart, my thoughts, but they keep pushing. They keep pushing. They're still not getting it. So that was point number two. Um, the astonishing miracle of divine omniscience. And now he's going to show us number three, which is divine omnipotence, omnipotence, all-powerful, that he has the power to speak healing into this paralytic's life. Now, how he gets there is how Jesus so often gets there, which is with a little pop quiz. Jesus, when he was being questioned, he loved to turn it back on them with questions. And they couldn't stand it when he did this. So he did this once before where they said they thought they had him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? You know, Caesar's fraudulent government, totally corrupt. He doesn't have God's. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, give me a coin. Whose inscription is this? Little pop quiz. Whose inscription? It's Caesar's. Okay. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and what is God what is God's. And after that, it shut them up. They knew not to mess with Jesus anymore. His wisdom was just so beyond theirs. And that's kind of similar what we're going to do right here. So the pop quiz he puts to the Pharisees, I want to put out to you. I'll give you three options. Okay? Option one, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Option one, your sins are forgiven. Is that easier to say? Option two, get up, take your mat, and walk. Or option three, I decline to participate in this survey. <laughs> okay? So uh, who thinks it's option one? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Anybody think one is the easier one? Okay. All right. Easier to say. Who thinks it's option two? Easier to say, get up, rise up, and walk. Okay. <laughs> who declines to answer? That's... <laughs> The decline to ant, that's, how can you even ask that? That's why you didn't vote on one or two. Okay. So, the answer to that kind of has two parts. The way he's putting it to the Pharisees, it is option one that is easier to say. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. People in false religions all around the world say your sins are forgiven every day. Uh, I absolve you from your sin. Your sins are forgiven. And it's internal spirit. How can you really prove that? But what you don't hear every day is somebody warming themselves up to someone that can't walk and has been crippled for years and saying, get up, take your mat, and go home. Because if it doesn't happen, you look like a complete fool. <laughs> so it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because like, oh yeah, maybe they are, maybe they are. How are we ever going to prove that? But 
the other one to say, rise up and walk, if that doesn't happen right in front of your eyes, then, then, then you just look like a fool. And so people don't, don't mess with that one. That one's harder. Now, the caveat to that is that, I mean, that's from man's point of view. From God's point of view, what he went through to forgive sin, the death and resurrection, yeah. He did a lot more to actually accomplish uh, forgiveness of sin than rise up and walk. But, um, but the point in the passage is that which is easier to say, rise up and walk. Verse 10. Verse 10. So that you may know. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Okay, so there's a lot right there. He's proving this point about his divinity to the Pharisees. So, verse 10, so that you may know. Some translations might say so that you may see. And this is where Bible exposition and Bible study gets kind of fun if you're a geek like me. But seeing their faith in verse 5 is the same exact word as so that you may know or see in verse 10. So the point is, the way Jesus saw into the paralytic's heart and mind and soul to see his faith, to see that faith, is how he wanted the Pharisees to see into him to see the truth of his divinity that he, in fact, was the Son of God. He wanted, him to, he wanted to be known in a real way to these people, not in a superficial way. He wanted them to know, to see, to perceive with their senses, to know for fact that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He told, that's where Jesus' power is, is in his spoken word. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Wow, that is omnipotence. That is the power of God speaking life into creation. Speaking life into creation. That same power in Genesis 1 and 2 that spoke the world into existence is speaking healing into this man's life because his ligaments, his muscle tissue, his bones would have been atrophied, broken, disabled, wobbly, He's dysfunctional. He probably would have had bed sores from being on that mat for who knows how long. Muscles would have atrophied. And he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. This is immediate healing. It's total healing. It's unaided. There's no six-month physical therapy. There's no surgery recovery. He gets up and takes his mat. This is why I said, Marks into these details. He takes his mat or mattress or bed. Who's helped somebody move or who's moved? Yeah. We, you leave the mattress for Chad. <laughs> right? Nobody wants to carry the mattress. That thing's wonky and big and it's just difficult. And it's like, don't use your back. You're like, ah, the load's out here. I can't help but use my back. This guy all of a sudden had like capability of like a 10-year crossfitter because he's able to somehow carry this mattress that it took four of them to carry in. The one of them carries it out. And that thing basically becomes a billboard 
to the healing power of Jesus Christ as he walks through the middle of the crowd, like separating the Red Sea. This is a testimony to God's power on the spot to speak healing into this man's life. Absolutely astonishing. They wouldn't part ways to let him in the room. They sure as heck parted ways to let him out. He came in on the mat. He carried the mat out. Complete, total, astounding transformation. And then how does he finish it? Go home. Go home. Who knows how long it's been since the poor guy was at home in his own bed. Maybe his parents had bought in to the Jewish false teaching and ostracized him, shunned him. It says four of them carried him. It doesn't say it was his family. It doesn't even say it was his friends. How long had it been since he went? Could you imagine him showing up on his parents' doorstep, standing upright, you know, shredded, sweet abs, CrossFit, ready to open a gym, like (laughs) totally healed? Go home. Go home. What a blessing. What a blessing. Twelve. Immediately. Man, that little word's important. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Never seen anything like this. So we're to the end of the passage, and I haven't gotten to that fourth little bonus miracle. And I can tell you this is the part of the preparation this week that I sort of struggled with the most. I had to work through this several times as I prepared for this morning because I just, when, when you go through that sermon prep process, God speaks to you and shows you things and you hear a podcast or read a book and all these sort of thoughts of what to say kind of invade in. And um, what's left is perhaps the most astonishing miracle of all. And I'll say this front, it's not explicit in the text, but it's implicit. In other words, maybe the people, the crowd that were there might not have noticed what I'm about to say, but we today, 2,000 years later, who kind of see the big picture and know what's going on, can work this one out. But this is the fourth miracle in this passage, and that's the miracle of divine providence. Divine providence. And providence is perhaps the greatest of all God's wonders. Perhaps the greatest of all God's wonders. Omnipotence and Jesus' power to do miracles. This isn't a technical definition, but just work with me. We could say that's God's power in the moment. Providence is his ongoing purpose being accomplished throughout history. So healing power the apostles could do. Jesus shared some of that capability, and you see this in the book of Acts, where the apostles had healing power, including Peter and Paul and others, but none of them had providence. That's exclusively a thing God does. So the best verse in the Bible on providence is probably Genesis 50, 20. And this is Joseph. Plain, plain words for a 
complex topic. Genesis 50, 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What a verse. Genesis 50, 20. What you planned evil against me, God planned it for good. So that's Joseph speaking, and you know his story. Sold in, or left for dead, dumped into a pit, sold into slavery, bought by this guy Potiphar, betrayed by Potiphar's wife, jailed in Egypt, and then rises through being able to interpret dreams to vice president of Egypt, second in all command. And God uses that, what you planned for evil, God planned for good, to the survival of many people, including his own brothers that dumped him in the pit. Joseph's wisdom in interpreting those dreams got them through the famines, helped them build the storehouses that went back and saved his brothers. And God twisted that whole thing around and you couldn't see it at the time. Joseph would have had no idea where this was going when he was in the pit. But now, centuries later, we can see the big picture of the providence and so could Joseph in his own life. J.I. Packer illustrates providence in his classic book, Knowing God, as like a cruise ship or a big freight liner. So if you, took, if you cruised from, well, he was speaking from New England, so from there to England, um, you might be on a cruise ship, and you could get in all sorts of trouble on a t- cruise ship. You have free will on a cruise ship. You can play lots of shuffleboard <laughs> on a cruise ship. You can go swimming, but you can go to casinos. You can get hammered on a cruise ship. You can get into all kinds of trouble on a cruise ship. And you think you've got all this you know, freedom and do whatever you want, but little do you know that that baby is going a certain direction and it's getting there and the captain is steering it no matter what you're doing in the meantime. Great illustration of providence that it's got a destination. But providence is kind of harder to see. That's why we love the miracles. The miracles are instant, right in front of us. We're dazzled by them. We love when Jesus does these healings, and so does the crowds. But the providence, even though it takes more power to do God's work of providence because you've got to work through the evil in the world too, um, it requires patience to see God's providence, wisdom, the counsel of older people who have been there or can help you see your situation in Scripture. It requires waiting So sometimes it's kind of an underrated miracle. And there's so many times, I think as Christians, we're well-intended, but a lot of times we call or want to call things miracles when it's actually God's providence at work. And we should truly reserve that word miracle for extraordinary events, extraordinary, with no other means of explanation, whereas providence is what God uses through the normal events of everyday life to accomplish his purpose in your life. So there's, in this passage, I want you to just see uh, uh, just a couple more minutes here, God's providence from three different points of view. We'll, we'll see it in the paralytic, and these will come a lot quicker. I want you to see providence in the paralytic's life, in Peter's life, which is basic, basically the author of Mark. These are the memoirs of Peter. So let's call this Peter's gospel. 
I want you to see it in the author's life and then, of course, in Jesus' life. So for the paralytic, we've seen God do a miracle in his life, but I want you to think about providence in this man's life. Providence in this man's life. So here's another pop quiz question for you. This one's rhetorical, though. You, you can't get this one wrong. <laughs> okay. Does anybody in this room know this man, the paralytic? Have you met him? No. It's okay. You can say, no, I haven't met him. No. <laughs> no, you haven't met the paralytic. You haven't. Why haven't you met him? Why? He's dead. Yeah. Because he died. This, this man is no longer with us. So let me ask you this. Right now, right now, which of the miracles that Jesus performed in his life does the paralyzed man appreciate more? Forgiveness or healing? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because if, let's say the paralyzed guy, I need a nickname for him. I should have come up with a nickname. Bill? <laughs> okay, so let's say Bob the paralyzed guy. I like hers. <laughs> um, we'll say Bob the paralyzed guy. Let's say Bob was in his 30s or 40s. Let's average lifespan at that time, 60 or 70. Let's say he was halfway through his life. He got these sweet legs, this CrossFit mattress-carrying body. Halfway through his life, he lived out his life in great health. So maybe he had got to enjoy healing for 30 or 40 years. How long has he enjoyed his forgiveness at this point? A couple thousand, 2,000 years. And he has about infinity squared times a kabillion to go. <laughs> so which miracle does he appreciate more? Forgiveness. That's the greater miracle. That's the greater miracle. But here's where providence comes into play. What brought him to Jesus for that forgiveness. His, his paralysis. The worst thing that ever happened to him brought him to Jesus so that the best thing that ever happened to him happened to him. That's providence. That's providence coming full circle. That he works through those challenges and those trials and those terrible things to bring about the best things. He might not have ever met Jesus had he not been crippled. Amazing. What about from Peter's point of view? Peter, oh man, he's our action guy. This, he loves the miracles. He loves Jesus' healing power. You see it come through as Mark writes down Peter's memories. These crowds, these healings, the death and resurrection. He loves this all. He likes being astonished by Jesus but get this, I mean, Peter's best dreams totally come true. In Acts chapter 3, Peter healed a lot of people, but it's almost a parallel passage to this. Acts 3, uh, 6, Peter says to another paralyzed guy, Acts 3, 6, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up 
and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate at the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. Almost the same passage. So Peter's hero, Jesus, who he's always astonished by, now he's the one with that same power doing these miracles. But check this out. 20 or 30 later, 20 or 30 years later, when he goes to write the epistle of 1 Peter, he says nothing about any of this. Nothing about healings, expectations for healings, about the own healings he did as a younger man. But what is the book of 1 Peter about? Anybody know? Suffering. 1 Peter's about suffering. The, all through every chapter, Peter clearly, clearly lays the emphasis on suffering. On suffering. Let me flip to that real quick. Um, 1, 6, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which through perish- though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 4.12, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. In other words, the trials in your life are perfectly normal. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. And then he says to the pastors, 5.1, I exhort the pastors among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ. Shepherd God's flock among you. Shepherd God's flock. How do you do that? Humble yourselves, therefore, verse 6, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. That's how he says to deal with your problems. Cast them on God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So at places in 1 Peter, he calls this predestination and foreknowledge. That's the technical theological terms for providence. Here he calls it the hand of God. That's the layman's term for providence. Just God's hand is at work in your life through this. And shepherds, pastors, need to help people see God's hand at work in their life when they can't. He doesn't say, all right, here's how you do the healings like I did. No, he says, teach them how to suffer well and believe in the providence of God. Finally, we see this through Jesus' point of view. Absolutely amazing, amazing thing that transpires here in uh, Mark. Some of the best words in this passage are the worst words. Some of the best words are the worst words from a providential point of view. Some of the best two words in this passage, part of the reason you and I even have the gospel and can be saved are because of the Pharisees' lies that he was blaspheming. From a providential point of view, we might see the words, he's blaspheming as the best two words in the passage. Why? Mark 14, his blasphemy 
blasphemy, is the only thing they could try to pin on him to get him to the cross. So when they say he's blaspheming, that sets in motion the conflict and the plot that eventually get him through this phony trial, this kangaroo court. They can't come up, they can't stick anything on him. No prosecutor can come up with anything. How could they? He's the sinless savior. He lived a perfect life. What are they going to say about the guy, especially a capital offense, something worth punishment by death? And all they can come up with is blasphemy, is blasphemy. And in Mark 14, 63, the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? they all condemned him as deserving death. They all condemned him as deserving death. So God works through these lying, false agents of Satan who are trying to take him down and kill him to bring about life and salvation for everyone who would ever believe. And that is providence. That is the miracle of divine providence. And providence, providence just saturates the gospel. Totally saturates the gospel. The way Peter says it is by his wounds, by his death, by his suffering, you are healed. By his wounds, you are healed. By the scars, by the whipping, the blow, the nails, all that pain that they tried to inflict on him, that's our relief. That's our salvation. Because that's, that's our sin that he's dying for. So the sins you and I commit, committed, will commit, lump them all together, you put them on Christ, he takes the punishment for the sins that you and I committed and then his righteousness is placed on us in an amazing transaction of providence so that when we believe in Christ, God looks down at you as if you lived the perfect life of Christ. That's, we're covered in the sun. So do you see providence at work there? Through blasphemy, satanic lies, false accusations, those became the gospel and the truth that saves us. Absolutely astonishing and certainly, in my opinion, the most powerful wonder and work that God could possibly do. So we can take so much comfort in that. It's hard to see the hand of God at work sometimes, and I know that might bring about some what if and what about and yeah, but questions. God's providence can be tough to wrestle through sometimes, but um, just know that what God planned or what man sometimes plans for evil or this world evil, that God is at work for good in your and my life in a way that's just from cover to cover in this book. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. So talk it out in small groups this week or with your friends. I didn't get to share a lot of stories, but I have tons of them. I hope you do too. And whether or not you've seen a miracle I hope that you can see God's providence 
at work in your life. Scripture teaches us to expect that. Um, it, it does, so we, we can, you know, have hope that, that God's providence is at work in our life. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much, so much for this amazing passage. Thanks for your scriptures that are complete, and we can see from Genesis to Revelation your hand of providence at work. And just help us to be astonished as the crowd was as we go about this week. In your name, amen. So a song that's been on my heart all week as I've been studying this is By His Wounds You Were Healed. My just thoughts kept coming back to it, and I've asked Deborah and the team if they'd just lead us in a meditation on that song that this is a passage about healing, and we see that through the wounds of Christ, our healing is accomplished. So just pray and meditate there kind of in these closing minutes as the band uh, sings this song. So thank you. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. was upon 